This week, we're going to talk about some of the work of one of my favorite writers, Steve Gerber. Joining me today are... Uh, Nick Hanover. And Eric Hoffman. And Eric and I are co-authors and editors of Steve Gerber Conversations. So um, I guess we should have some idea what we're talking about. The theme of this work, uh, this week's episode is going to be some of Steve Gerber's early 90s work. Um, three of his most interesting 90s creations are Fool Killer, Sludge, and Nevada. We'll talk about some of the genesis of each of those series as we go on. Um, but one that is very resonant of our modern of our modern times, and one that I can see a lot of um, our world as we struggle to make sense of it, is in Fool Killer. Um, yes. Which is kind of the story of someone trying to make sense of his world and, I guess, failing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm curious what you guys uh, make of it. Uh, well, just Nick to give a I little back. About it. Well, Nick and I spoke. Go ahead, please, Eric. Well, just to give a little background on that title, the original Fool Killer was uh, Reg Everbest. Which was in a Ross. Ross Everbest, sorry. Uh, which was a uh, no, is wasn't it Reg Everbest? I'm so sorry. No, no, it's, it's Ross G Everbest. Ross G Everbest. Excuse yeah. me. <laughs> this is the editor of Steve Gerber Conversations here. <laughs> Any, uh, it's an anagram for Steve Gerber, obviously. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, he was a character. Man Thing, which was one of Gerber's earliest comics uh, in his career, uh, that was the initial character, Fool Killer, and he was sort of a um, sort of a guest character who appeared in a handful of Man Thing uh, comics in the mid '70s, and he was this sort of uh, almost absurd. Typical of Gerber of those times, kind of an absurd character, had this real gaudy costume that was sort of, I don't know, how would you describe it? Uh, he's got a classic 70s pimp hat, I'll say that much. Yeah, he's yeah, got that the, it's feather. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just sort of a gaudy outfit, sort of, uh, to, I think sort of to objectify his apparent insanity and he's on this mission to rid the world of fools and the fools of course are uh the sort of people that um gerber considered to be fools uh so his targets were you know the typical gerber targets and uh he didn't last too long um uh, <laughs> Uh, and and then um, that character sort of went away with Man Thing, and uh, I don't believe there was any. Were there any appearances of Fool Killer between the original Man Things and this miniseries? So he yes. appears. He appears in Omega, but he also yeah, appears in issues. Yes, right, he was di- Omega. D- yeah, a different Fool Killer, right. um, which is uh, interesting because it's kind of emblematic of the Gerberverse. I spoke, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
And Nick, you're, I think you're going to make a point about that. Oh, yeah. Well, so he, the one that appears in Omega the Unknown is Greg Salinger, who changes like w what he decides fools are, because that's where it becomes he's wiping out fools because they have an absence of a poetic nature, which I just <laughs> was like an incredible Gerberism. Right. Uh, and then that character makes appearances in a couple issues of Defenders and Spider-Man over the years. They really kind of drifted into obscurity until he was revived um, for this 1990, I believe, miniseries. Yes. Yep. Um, which um, we talked about here before, but I still feel is kind of the most profoundly upsetting comic series I've read in a while. <laughs> yeah. It's... It's a very, very bleak comic, but it, it still has like a lot of like Gerber humor, but it, it feels like, uh, it, in a way it feels like Gerber at his most cynical because mm -hmm. there's no real like hope or optimism in the series, like, and it just gets more and more upsetting as it goes on. It kind of takes like vigilantes to like the absolute most logical extreme. Mm -hmm. um, like almost like a twist on on the Punisher in a way. But the Punisher at least has this like very strict code that he abides by. Whereas with the 1990 Fool Killer, it's like he just keeps moving the goalpost of what his mission and, you know, who he perceives criminals to be. And it just keeps getting darker and darker and darker. Right. I, I found him just so spookily resonant of the world we live in today. Um, it just really clicked into place how this is someone who you'd see as a QAnon type person. Yes, absolutely. Uh, especially yeah. with his obsession with with the media. And I mean, there's even like, I don't think like fake news ever gets used as a phrase in this comic, but fake news is everywhere in this comic. There's like an Alex Jones-esque like media personality who's kind of like antagonizing full killer and pushing him to, you know, just get worse and worse and worse. And he, and he pushes both full killers because the inciting incident is that Salinger like gets on the program and basically gets like a platform for his weirdness. And then that inspires the new full, full killer who is the, the main character in this series. Uh, to kind of go and start his mission. Um, even though there's also, I'm trying, that there's like another, ins, uh, what is it that happens with him too? His dad gets wiped out as well, like gets killed over like two, six dollars. Gets beaten mm -hmm. to death over six dollars, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really the, the media message that drives him to start like acting out this violent fantasy. Yeah, it's it's interesting how tapped into the zeitgeist Gerber was because this was published again, ninety ninety one. So you know he was clearly putting this together in probably eighty nine, early ninety. You know, um, and this was sort of right on the uh, tail end of this culmination or fruition of these two uh, sort of. Um, tendencies in American society that were coming together where you had uh, the doomsday preppers who had sort of 
developed out of uh, the 1950s and 1960s nuclear scare. And uh, of course, that sort of came to a head in the 1980s. I, I'm sure, I, I mean, I'm of the age that I remember we did the duck and cover things in our classrooms. And and there was definitely an air of sort of uh, uh, impending nuclear catastrophe going on. And so that sort of met up with another element of, of American society in the 80s, which was, uh, well, more or less got started in the late 70s, but uh, uh, religious uh, fundamentalism was coming back with uh, evangelical Christianity and so on. And the, those two things sort of came together and uh, more or less culminated in the incident at Ruby Ridge. Right. Uh, and then uh, that led straight to uh, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, which was shortly after Fool Killer came out. But there was definitely, Fool Killer was definitely tapping into this meme, uh, sort of white rage uh, at society and what society had become. And uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of strands to that, uh, paranoid strands that, you know, you're sort of talking about with, you know, the uh, QAnon and Alex Jones and everything that's sort of come out of that, the more extreme paranoid um, conspiracy theories that have developed over the years that all sort of were seeded in these late 80s, early 1990s events. Um, and there was one other, uh, other than the Oklahoma City bombing, what was it? Waco. Waco. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, all those things were sort of happening right during that period. And it was definitely, I think, Gerber was feeding into that. There was also a Michael Douglas movie that came out in 93, I think it was, called Falling Down. Falling Down, yeah. Yeah. It was about this. Right. Joel, the late Joel Schumacher. And uh, Michael Douglas was this sort of, you know, white uh, working class, white collar guy who'd lost his job. He was going through a divorce and he was sort of... Uh, you know, uh, I think the 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 gist of the movie is he sort of gets off the beaten path into the inner city and he sort of lets go of this white rage. And and so there was definitely this air of, you know, um, sort of, uh, uh, um, I guess, uh, you know, anger, uh, frustration and how that anger and frustration has, you know, results in, in violent, uh, uh, um, and that's definitely, I think the, that sort of seems to be the, the main thread that's going through this whole series. Yeah. Cause it just, his anger just keeps getting more and more intense and he keeps lashing out at people who are further and further from, you know, what most people would perceive as like hardcore criminals. Like he just, like at one point he just starts attacking like a dean at uh, Empire State University because he announces a new political correctness policy at the school. Uh, and that's, that issue is like also weird because you have Peter Parker slash Spider-Man there like looking in on the, <laughs> the protest, I think. Right. Well, it's definitely, I mean, I think that the original uh, pool killer in the 1970s 
was a different time, and I think there was more of an a kind of absurdist element to it. And in this series, he just completely jettisons the absurdity of it and more or less grounds it in this realism that the character becomes all the more, um, I guess, uh, frightening. Mm-hmm. I think he's terrifying uh, for all the reasons we were just talking about. I mean, he, Gerber was really feeding off two elements or two or more elements in, in the society. I guess one is the post Reagan sense of uh, the working man, although, uh, yeah, the working man starts trying to get by in a world that he feels like is moving, leaving him behind through gentrification and other societal problems, you know, companies laying off longtime workers. Um, and then the exploding crime rate in America in the 1990s, which, you know, is now so controversial because it's resulted in the reaction has resulted in so many people being thrown in jail. And then you could just really feel almost the inexorable force of him being involved in the right wing media's uh, ecosystem as it existed then. Um, manifest. And so all three of those really feel contemporary in ways that really make this book a horror comic more than a crime comic. Yeah. Especially the way that he wipes out the, I'm just going to call them victims because they're, they're really just victims. Uh, mm-hmm. But where like he literally eradicates them. Like they get, he shoots them with this gun that starts to disintegrate them. And it's uh, the artist on it, JJ uh, Birch makes it, extremely horrific it's not like a you know like i feel like even in punisher comics at the time like even though punisher was blowing people up or shooting them it wasn't as grisly as like what's happening in this even though this doesn't have as much blood um because you just watch this like sometimes like there's the most traumatic like scene to me is when he basically decides he's gonna shut down this crack house and he's just like going through and just like wiping people out and then he comes across like a kid that is smoking crack and he tries to shoot the kid after the kid has thrown a knife at him but he messes up and like just wipes out like half of his body and then has to like keep doing it in parts because he you know yeah. like it's and it's just such a like it looks like something from like like a, a warren magazine you know like it's it's so grotesque and at that point in time he's wearing this like gimp mask like costume so he looks yes. like a something from like a slasher film like he, he does not look at all like a, a hero uh he's you know or an anti-hero he just looks like a monster right yeah that costume is a far cry from the original full killer's costume <laughs> yes yes it is <laughs> yeah you talk about the art by jj birch or joe brzezowski whichever we prefer um, and it really is just perfect for this book because there's this kind of unflinching focus he has where nothing's really exaggerated. It's just all told on a very kind of clear, almost flat level. Flat's maybe not the right word for it. I was going to say flat. <laughs> and yeah. I think part of that comes Every, from the inquiry. Everything, everything is given the same amount of detail mm-hmm. the same level of, of attention and it's very interesting how how he does that 
Yeah, and Gregory Wright's coloring on it is also really striking to me because it, it gives a this like oversaturated post-apocalyptic feel like at all times. Like it looks like like something from like a John Carpenter movie or, you know, uh, yeah. you know, just any of the real stark works that were coming out at that point in time about there's a lot like, of post-apocalypses. What lends what lends it to that evenness or flatness is this repetition of color palettes. I mean, it's almost consistently throughout. He repeats the same colors, yeah, over and over again. You know, yeah. regardless of the regardless of what's taking place, it's a scene at a McDonald's or a child being murdered. I mean, it's like the same color palette. It's the same sort of static presentation. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's this muted earth tone feel. Right, that literally makes it feel grounded. Uh, and it's just so unflinching. Uh, Gerber's commented it about it since, of course, but there's no commentary actually in the comic. There's no letters page. There's no editorial notes. It it seems very deliberately there to stand on its own and cause a reaction. You guys talked about uh, how, you know, contemporary it feels. And I was very struck from the, you know, just reading it again and looking at uh, how the narrative sort of uh, gets started in this. And it's, you know, this correspondence that's taking place between a prisoner, uh, Greg, the second fool killer and the third fool killer. And the correspondence is sort of, I, I thought it was kind of, I don't know, quaint that it was on that. Um, what style uh, a printer was that? They were oh, using the dot matrix printer, yeah. yeah matrix, matrix yeah, the, manifesto, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, it sort of brought me back to the early days of the uh, interwebs. Um, you know, and just before you know the infancy of the home computer. But uh, what was interesting to me about that was it almost felt like he was already seeing that sort of um, inevitable outcome of the personal computer and everyone being interconnected of people becoming insulated by their own belief systems and only seeking out those people who confirm their rather than question their belief systems. And we see that all the time now with people who are, you know, like you mentioned, QAnon and, and things like that, where people intentionally seek out uh, those websites or those media outlets that reconfirm their beliefs rather than present alternative viewpoints. And that seems to be almost what the, you know, fool killer is doing in this comic, reaching out to Greg. And they're almost like this, um, you know, egging each other on kind of uh, relationship. Um, it's interesting to me. Yeah, and then it kind of gets away from him at the end because he starts to realize that uh, like that what he has helped spawn is like much, much worse than than he ever intended when he was full killer because Kurt ends up like just going completely off the deep end and you can see like even Salinger just kind of being like, oh shit. <laughs> what have I unleashed? <laughs> right. Well, and, 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 you know, isn't that the, isn't that the uh, sort of power of, of the, of the uh, internet in the sense that, you know, you can publish these things 
these manifestos or make these comments and they go out into the world and you may not necessarily have intended people to take that information or those beliefs, you know, and, and put them to violent ends. But we see that happen all the time now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like that happened directly with Alex Jones, where, you know, you had the the people that showed up at the, the pizza place in DC and, you know, had a gun and demanded to be taken to the basement that did not exist. And, <laughs> and then Alex Jones tried to like, say like, well, no, I, I, I didn't cause that to happen. Like, that's not my fault. And it's like, well, well I'm just I, an entertainer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, like it's not even an extrapolation to imagine with like, people attacking a Dean at a press conference. No, I mean, I feel like that is, if it has not already happened, is going to happen sooner or later. Um, I mean, like, I, I think that probably the, the closest example of that that we've had recently has been, like, attacks on media, where these conspiracy theorists have, like, gone and sent poison or have, like, gone and tried to shoot up newsrooms and stuff like that. Because uh, that, for a while, that, that seemed like that was happening relatively frequently. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, there's another scene that really resonated with me, uh, which is in the final issue, when he's confronting Reverend Flapton. Yes. And the Reverend says, "Racism, racism is the tool by which the powerful exploit, exclude, and oppress the powerless. See my skin? I'm powerless. By definition, I can't be racist. By definition, you're a fool." And then he zaps him. Yeah. Um, and um, ah, there's so much like this feels so modern. He just executes him for having a different opinion and for being, um, you know, outside of, of his belief system. And then the full killer himself gets gunned down by a squad of police. Um, yes. And it's just like this perpetuating stream of violence that never seems to end. Um, it just feels like so much of our world's troubles are summarized just in that couple scenes. Yeah, and it, it's very nihilistic. Yeah, yes. uh, one of the cops even says, uh, we'll score a promotion for this and we're rid of the loud, ma loud mouth and it's like, shit, I mean. <laughs> it. Yeah, I, I mean, when we talked about it before, Jason, I, I I think like you and I discussed how one of the hard things with this series is trying to figure out like what Gerber's like ultimate intent with it was mm -hmm. because it it has a lot of Gerberisms, but it's it's so different from all of his other stuff, and it seems mean spirited, but also at times it seems prophetic. So it's just like this whole thing of just. I don't know, maybe because it doesn't necessarily have an exact statement, it is more malleable than some of his other works been. Mm -hmm. I think it shows, a, if it shows nothing else, it shows the confidence Gerber has at this point in his writing career. Because he could not have written this series when he was younger. No. Um, well, because he was more hopeful before. Like, I, I think, yeah. like... You can kind of mark a dividing line between what happened, like up to the Howard the Duck 
theft, and then after. And it feels like after everything went down with Howard the Duck, he became a much bleaker writer and more cynical for a lot of his works, especially for any of the work that he did for Marvel after that. What do you think about that, Eric? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, w I was thinking about that, too, and how once the duck was sort of taken from him. Uh, and then he did some, you know, he did some work after that. And I think, you know, probably the most memorable thing he did after that was Stuart the Rat, which was sort of an, you know, overt commentary on the whole Howard the Duck experience. And then also Destroyer Duck, obviously. And, and then that, you know, so that was it for a while. He, you know, he came back and he did another strip that is, uh, uh another comic that is, uh, a pretty overtly, um, violent, um, and I wouldn't say nihilistic, but it's certainly violent, uh, which was Void Indigo. Yeah. Yeah. And that, comic to me really i think maybe destroyer duck and and void indigo right after it and of course Stuart the rat that was i think he's really on to something uh max is really on to something when he says that because it was they all sort of came about from 80 to 84 right in there um so right after he left marvel and uh sort of right before he he really started to do a lot of work in animation in 84, 85. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because he started working on G.I. Joe at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, shortly shortly thereafter. Uh, G.I. Joe was, um, I want to say he started working on G.I. Joe in 84, 1984. So, yeah, um, but these comics obviously came out before he was really getting going in animation, he had been doing Thunder the Barbarian, and he did, I think he was story editor on D the uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, cartoon. Oh, uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Right. So he had been doing intermittent work in animation at around the same time he was doing Stuart the Rat, Story Doc, and, and Void Indigo. But then, he also like worked in some of the bleakest episodes of both of those shows, too, because there's that infamous G.I. Joe episode where they see, like... It's where they, like... I can't remember if they get sent to, like, an alternate dimension or if it's, like, a hallucination or what, but, like, all the other Joes are dead and it's just, like, two of them walking through, like, this wasteland. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So I, 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 I tend to agree. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, he didn't come back to Marvel until Shooter left and DeFalco was started inviting back all the guys who had jumped ship during the Shooter reign, you know, like Doug Mensch and a few others. And uh, that was in 89, thereabouts. Uh, he hadn't been doing any work for DC since Phantom Zone in 82. So I, I you know, honestly, I think that there's some meat to that argument that uh, the Howard the Duck experience sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't say it poisoned him, but I would say it definitely confirmed some of his, you know, worst views about corporate comics and about, you know, uh, 
capitalism and <laughs> things of that nature. <laughs> well, should yeah, we should we talk about sludge on that since that's one of the ones that's kind of outside of the realm of I mean, I, it's kind of DC, right? Like it's so sludge was, was created for the Ultraverse. So briefly, the story of the Ultraverse is um, a publisher named Malibu Comics uh, was able to made a deal with Image to publish their first eleven months of their comics before Image spun off as its own company. Right. Um, they only made a certain amount per copy, but they made enough to rake in millions of dollars, which they decided to use to um, start their own line of comics. Malibu had they got, had already been publishing a whole set of comics, but they decided to create like a more prestigious line of books called the Ultraverse, and that included um, the Ultraverse was a writer-driven line, which included work by people like Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber, Larry Niven, which I thought was very interesting, as oh, well yeah. as a bunch of other yeah. folks as well, sadly including Gerard Jones. Yeah, um, and Gerber created um, two comics for that line. One was called Exiles, and the other was called Sludge. And Malibu got bought by Marvel, or was it DC? Who who eventually acquired Malibu? Uh, Marvel, although right. um, DC almost came to buy them. Um, there's a full podcast about uh, the the uh, about Malibu, the entire history of Malibu, in the podcast feed for the series. And I, we should say that Fool Killer was sort of the last real substantial comic that he did for Marvel. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. for, for his career. I mean, other than the Kevin Nolan uh, graphic novel, the Infernal Man thing, which was uh, didn't come out until 2012. Yeah, he stepped away from Marvel and, and was doing work for, you know, the Indies, the early 90s, Malibu and Image. And Vertigo. Yeah, and we'll get to some of the we'll get to his vertigo work in a minute, um, and which is honestly about my some of my favorite work by ever by Gerber. Yeah, same. Uh, but before we get there, let's talk about work that I felt was really disappointing, which was Sludge. Um, <laughs> it's it's weird because it it's so similar to Fool Killer in tone, and I mean because it's a similar thing of. A person who's been disappointed by a system goes rogue, starts indiscriminately killing people, and is spurred on by a another Alex Jones esque figure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, I think one of the things I think everyone kind of goes over this in comics. Ever like you know what really draws you into thing and as much as i love gerber and am drawn to his stuff uh this comic really makes it clear how bad gerber can be when he does not have a good artist working with him because mm -hmm. the thing for me with sludge is that like the art and the coloring and everything in this is so amateur like it just i don't know I, did either of you feel that about it too like it just kind of it's a long ways away from mike blue yeah. <laughs> yeah. That way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I know. I also felt like it was really amateurish, and the whole book just kind of suffers from it. It also just feels like he's not. I don't know what the, the term is. I like he's not quite paying full attention to it, or his heart's not fully into it. It just feels compromised in in ways that just make it 
tough to get through at times. Did you feel that way? Yeah, it, it felt very formless. Like it just, I mean, no pun intended there with the weird sludge monster uh, who is literally form, formless. Uh, but it just, I don't know. It 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 feels like I, I, all of the Malibu stuff for me kind of feels like this too, where it just is, it's got too many components of other things and no real discernible identity. Because this feels like, them looking at what was working for image at the time of these like extreme characters who are very clearly modeled after like Marvel and DC stuff. Like this character feels like venom or carnage to me mixed with like the Punisher. Like, mm -hmm. it, it... Yeah. Steve Gerber uh, in an interview that's reprinted in our book, he describes him as that's the Kim Howard Johnson interview from 93. Gerber describes him as Clint Eastwood, but he drips a lot. <laughs> See, that alone is more entertaining than the entire comic. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it is strange that it has like so many of the things that that I think work in Full Killer. They just don't work here. And this was like three years after Full Killer was done, so it's kind of bizarre to see Gerber retread the same ground. Just a couple years. Uh, yeah, and the elements that should have made this really powerful, with like the the body horror stuff, um, just don't land the way they want them to. No, I and I think that's again down to the art because I, you know, like it, the art is like too. You know what it reminds me of is it looks like the uh, Archie take on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when they were doing like the TMNT oh, like, wow. comic series. Oh. Do, you, do you remember that? That's yes. a and, great analogy. Um, yeah, which I, works in that realm. It just does not work for this type of story that's supposed to be like horrific. Uh, yeah, and I mean like it. it's hard not to like compare it to what J.J. Birch was doing too. Cause like the J.J. Birch stuff is so visceral and this is just not. I would well, say one thing. Go ahead. Competent versus incompetent. I would competent versus incompetent. Yeah, and it, like I, I don't know that I know any other things Aaron Lopresti, Lopresti, is that what it is? Lopestri yeah. did. Yeah. I was thinking of that too. I I couldn't think of anything offhand. Let's see. Let's. Yeah, I'm. He, he was at CrossGen. Okay, CrossGen. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like he was also on Justice League Generation Lost and then the Justice League International Revival in 2012. Yeah, so he's a, like a workman-like cartoonist. Yeah. He's had a decent enough career. And this is, this is probably his earliest work, looking over the Wikipedia page for him. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The only thing I'm seeing earlier is like an issue of uh, Marvel Comics Presents and then like a random namer, the Submariner villain. Yeah, so, I mean, in a way you can't fault him for that, but it, it certainly takes away so much from the book um, because I think someone like Birch would have really given this book an edge that pulled it together in a way that 
emphasize the horror and the drama of the character. I mean, I feel like we never understand what this cop really feels like trapped inside his body. <laughs> no, because, I mean, he can't even, like, formulate his thoughts. Like, they're all messed up. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, um, this is around the same time that The Max was coming out. And mm-hmm. The Max is, like, similar turf, but, like, Sam Keith's art in it was so striking and unique and, you know, like... Like, I think if you had someone like that on there or even like a Todd McFarlane or someone like that, who you know, basically just needs to be like an actual Spider-Man artist who's used to doing Venom. Did you, you know, find it? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm looking at that same interview and, and, and toward the end, I think Gerber makes a comment uh, in the interview, which maybe he subconsciously was aware that Sludge and exiles were maybe not his best work because he <laughs> well and i was thinking as jason was talking i was thinking you know one of the things that for sludge is that m- much of the storytelling it seems kind of cliched and mm-hmm. then i just looked at the page i'm flipping through the conversations book and he says uh, gerber says to kim howard Johnson. I honestly think the best thing I've ever done in comics, though, is probably the Fool Killer limited series. It goes deeper <laughs> into a character. It goes deeper into a single character without relying on cliches than anything I've done prior to that time. The rules I set for myself with that book, though, were no easy outs. Whatever has happens has to be absolutely believable. The one mm. fantasy element is the ray gun. Everything else has to be completely plausible or it doesn't get into that book. That forced me to really look at the character as a human being in a real environment and try to predict what a character like that would do and why he would do it. I'm really proud of what I did with the characterizations. I don't think I've ever done anything that remotely resembles it. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, that sort of illustrates a lot of the problems I have with Sludge. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's weird though because it's like if he felt that way like why why try to come back and do it with a lesser character like it's just kind of i don't know i and he he created this character right it wasn't like a character that he was assigned well the group no, created it yeah because the uh i was confused by the its connection to rune or whatever like or what else was going on with that I don't really know a lot about the Malibu Ultraverse stuff, so so I didn't know like whether it was like a thing like uh, where they created that and then gave it to different writers or you know. Well, I know the writers came together to create a bunch of different titles. I know some of them were pre-existing, so I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to ask my sources where where the idea for Sludge came from. Um, but it seems like they probably said, oh, he's written Swamp Monsters before. This will be a hook. We'll have a look <laughs> on this one. Yay. You know, it'll be just like Man Thing. Um, well, unless, unless you guys have anything else to say, do you want to climb out of the muck and visit the, <laughs> well, I wanted the to dry end of the Las Vegas desert? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. That's what my, were, your, th- what that's, were your thoughts on that? <laughs> Oh no! Uh, I would I would love to hear your thoughts on it, guys. Go ahead. Uh, I just adored this book. 
rereading Nevada, um, just uh, uh, it just made me so happy all over. Um, it, it's so strong in so many ways. It's full of joy. It's a um, tremendously entertaining book. Uh, the lead character at the center of it. Um, gosh, you know, uh, she's just such an interesting, unique person. There's nothing stereotypical about her. She's not some sex pot. She's not some genius. She's just this woman trying to get by. Um, and then everything she finds herself stuck in, getting involved with, is um, just so interesting and so wacky, but also so compelling. Uh, yeah, there, there's I, a great interview that Gerber did with a uh, sequential tart where he's talking about like, creating the character and how Nevada was inspired by like real women that he knew. And like one of my favorite things that he said about like any of his characters is when he's explaining that he didn't want to write about a good or bad girl. He didn't want to write about an inflatable assassin doll or a walking compendium of feminist dogma. I wanted a female character who was at least as complex as any male character in comics, which isn't saying much, but it was a place to start. And I just, you know, like I, I think that, one of the reasons why Nevada has always been one of my favorite Gerber works is because you can tell that he's like not only really enjoying writing it, but that it, it feels very much like a character study and him trying to like basically just bring something real and unique and fresh to comics rather than just kind of like doing the same old shit. <laughs> right. And, you know, what's what's interesting about this title is that first it was his first comic with the major publisher since he left Marvel after he did Fool Killer in 91 or 92. This came out in 98 and it was through the DC Comics Vertigo line. Um, and it was, interestingly enough, a character that had originally appeared both Nevada and, and the ostrich in a sort of throwaway fight scene from yeah. Doc number 16, which was a multiple comic, but obviously he was able to retain the rights to some of his characters. I guess she wasn't significant enough for Marvel to bother with any kind of trademark or copyright. And so he just took this character that clearly he'd been thinking about for all of those years. Um, and he, I think uh, Gerber was living in uh, Las Vegas at the time or outside Las Vegas, but he was living in Nevada at the time that he wrote this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of, I think, um, autobiographical aspects to this comic um, that, you know, he, he just had been... I, you know, I guess, you know, he's been, he hadn't been, he hadn't written a comic for so many years, and this was more or less kind of like his comeback uh, toward the tail end of his career. So, and he came back with a vengeance. I mean, it's, it's a great comic. It's just a total page turner, and it's funny and, and weird and, and completely bonkers and unpredictable and just everything you love about a Gerber comic. It's all there. And the characters feel real. They feel like lived in, like they have a history. Uh, the art is just perfection by Phil Winslade. 
and you know there's just a real feeling of movement and the, the characters feel alive he just really lends it um you know an energy that that is just so unlike any other i don't know even unlike any other vertigo comic at the time yeah it, it just feels so bright and so fun and it just like pulls you into the story in a way that um it, it's the opposite of fool killer um it's um winsley was a great partner for him too have you guys read the the 2000 era howard the duck yeah he was the, the artist on that was, also yes, and um, which was, you could tell there were sparks yeah. between the two of them well it was it's funny too because like what you're saying about the brightness and all that. Um, Cause this was the era when vertigo started to get kind of a bad reputation for having, I forget who termed it, but like the vertigo coloring where it's like everything, <laughs> everything is like Brown and yellow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess like part of it is because this is such a, I mean, it's Las Vegas, right? So it has to be all bright and interesting and sort of surreal. Uh, but it, you know, I didn't really think about it until you were saying that about like how much it stood out from literally everything else going on at Vertigo at that point in time. Because it, look, look at the colors on any page. There, it's suffused with primary colors. Um, obviously, you know, our lead character is um, dressed pretty skimpily too, so there's a lot of flesh tone in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, because she's a showgirl, like, but which, none of her. She's and she's actually naked in this issue too, but none of the nudity feels exploitative at all. No, and it, it he talks about that in that interview too about how uh, you know like he wanted her to be like a real human and like look like you know not like how so many women in comics are treated, even though she's like a showgirl and I think in less responsible hands that would have just been treated as like just you know cheesecake uh but he even talks about how it's kind of unrealistic the way that they do it because like her body i think he says is more like what you would see like with a jazz dance ensemble rather than like a las vegas showgirl mm-hmm. right but he <laughs> but yeah he says yeah she's built like a dancer yes but more the type of dancer you'd expect to see in an interpretive jazz troupe in soho than on a las vegas stage in vegas softer body contours and boobs the size of the iberian peninsula are much more the rule so, you know, it's like a conscious decision on his part to make her not look like what most people are associating like women in comics with, even though Las Vegas showgirls would have had the proportions of like what you see in mainstream comics. Mm-hmm. He even makes a yeah. point about there's her. Definitely... Go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to say there's definitely a, a sort of. Um... There's there's definitely a callback to Beverly and and Howard uh, yeah. with her and and the ostrich. That's you know, it's pretty on the nose. It's there, but oh, Eric's frozen on me. Yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah, right. So I'll just continue. Uh, I like that when we eat, when we first meet her too in the very first scene. Um, she's not doing anything exploitative at all. She's just out there running. 
um, in really just very normal sorts of running clothes. You know, my wife wears literally wears those type of clothes all the time. So there's nothing that feels she's introduced basically as a normal person, which I appreciate so much uh, because it it just gives the story since the story goes so fantastically off in its own direction. Um, it gives it such a strong grounding. Right. And another thing I really enjoyed is how slowly the story builds. We really have, we have the the mystery introduced at the beginning of issue one, and then it takes us a while before we come back to it. And it gives them a chance to really allow the story to play itself out. It's a lot more movie-like than um, almost anything else we've read by Gerber. Yeah, I feel like it would make a great film. Like I would love, like most Gerber stuff I feel would be almost impossible to make into a movie. Um, would Howard the Duck, the film, being a great example of why. <laughs> but this one, I, I do think, would, would be great. Like, it, it has such a fun energy to it, and it's more character-driven. And I, I don't know, like, I, it's so much of it is, like, the, the scenery and the characters that make this such an interesting work. And I think that with a lot of other things that people associate with Gerber, they're more conceptual. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of, like, fun to watch him just just enjoy these characters and telling their, you know, letting them live their lives. Hey, I know, I know you're looking through the book, Eric. Um, and yeah. remember he had a long relationship with this writer, Stephanie Osborne, who yes. actually wrote to yes. issue two, the letters page in issue two with just some really cute comments about the book. And um, I think, yeah, what'd she say here? Um, well, she just loves it. It definitely has a quality. An ostrich, for Christ's sake. You're nuts, completely whacked, but sad in the use for the week and uninspired. I'm dying to see what you do with the series. I mean, there's just such a level of obvious affection there, even if she's not directly based on, or if that's not directly based on her. Um, it's pretty clear he's got a great relationship with this woman. Um, or uh, had, I should say. And um, maybe that's how, uh, I don't want to completely psychoanalyze him, and I don't know, I never had a chance to do any more than interact with him on his boards, but we were just talking about how Gerber was kind of, we felt like he was broken a bit when he lost the duck and had a series of downturns in the 80s. And maybe when he went to Vegas and was able to build a group of friends he was around, um, he was able to get past that because this book isn't, betraying any of that negativity and actually i felt like howard wasn't showing that negativity either i feel like gerber kind of settled in middle age into what appears to have been a pretty happy existence i even noticed some themes that were reminiscent of Wendigo, where you know almost <laughs> uh like a john like you you met carpenter s uh, sort of, you know, uh, evil, ancient evil that's, you know, uh, returned to Earth, this, this alien presence that's returned to Earth, and, and there's this menacing tone to it. And then here you have themes actually somewhat similar to what's going on in Void Indigo. Just, it's like a comedy compared, compared to that. It's just he's having fun with it. You know, he's not taking himself too seriously, and... Um, he's taking a lot of themes that are, you know, kind of like dark themes, but he's doing it in a way that has a kind of a, a 
uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, when when something is is sort of silly or you know absurd. Yeah, sir. I guess would would describe it. Yeah. Yeah, and you could see elements of that from our previous episode. We were talking about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, especially, but it just seems to be so much more fully realized here. Yeah, I, I, I think probably because of what you were saying about how this was a concept that had been rolling around in this brain for a couple decades by the time he wrote this. Right. Right. And he fully intended to continue on with it. I think he had real genuine affection for the character uh, or characters. And I, I know in one of the interviews in our book, he does mention that he for an independent publisher or web uh, uh, somehow keep it going on. And I don't think he ever or did I don't think there were any Nevada stories subsequent to this one, but I know that he and Phil Winslade. I always forget about that 2002 uh, Howard series. Um, was under what was the Marvel imprint? Marvel, Marvel Max, Max, yeah, Max, yes. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, which you know. That again, that that series has that same quality to it, I think, as it's in this series. Um, he definitely seems to have sort of come out of his funk, as it were. Yeah, we should talk about Howard in our next episode of of Gruber Mania. Go ahead. We're gonna. Oh, say- I was just saying, what has Phil Winslade been doing? Lately, because I, I feel like I haven't seen his work in a long time. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I feel like I haven't either. He's, uh, I feel like he, I don't I, it felt like he was everywhere during the break. Right. I, I don't, you know, yeah. I, I just love the man's art, too. It's just so bright and cheerful. It looks like he's done like a couple like fill-in issues on like Valkyrie and stuff like that, but that's just weird because he his you know like a lot of those other Vertigo artists from that time, um, like I I feel like they really like blew up you know like Sean Phillips and some others and it's just kind of weird that he I don't know maybe he does like commercial art or something instead now something that is uh, less stressful and more lucrative, right. <laughs> Now you got me thinking I might want to get a Howard sketch from him or something. Uh, well, he's, I'm, I'm looking at his face, stalking his Facebook and. <laughs> I think it's uh, no anyway. me that, oh, I'm sorry. No, I what were you going to say? That, uh, that, uh, Nevada was, um, you know, I, I know DC, you know, sorry, we're not quite hearing you. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Let's see what's going on. Oh, you're good now. I'm good now. Yeah, coming through now. Okay. So I thought it was interesting that 
DC decided to collect Nevada. And I think that, that, you know, it was important for him, for Gerber once, you know, the industry changed and, and, uh, series were starting to be collected, you know, for paperback sales and bookstores and things. And I know he always wanted to see full killer collected and it never was. And wow. it still hasn't to this day, which is criminal. Um, it's really weird because, too because they've revived Full Killer like twice since that series. Because right. there was like a there were two Marvel Max uh, runs on it, and then they did one more recently with Max Bemis writing it. And it you would think that when they did that, that they would at least do some sort of collection. Uh, you know, like if if you're trying to revive interest in this character, you would think you would at least like bring up the original. Yeah, but they but they never do. No. <laughs> you know, so he always held that fool killer up as his best work alongside Howard the Duck, and I and notably Nevada was the one that he always sort of pointed to as his one of his best works. So I think it's great that DC collected it one time, uh, and you can get it in a collected. Edition. I don't think it's in print anymore, but um, you know, it's definitely it's definitely a great standalone book, and and uh, yeah, it's I I think it's one of his one of his best one of the best things he ever did. Yeah, agreed. I think that's a good stopping point. So when we do our, we should do at least one more episode in this series. I'd love us to talk about the, his uh, 2000s work. So we should include Howard, maybe that two-part Superman Elseworlds story, and Hard Time. Yeah. Definitely Hard Time, yeah. Oh, thank you.